Welcome to the Plutarch Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Cox from Grammaticus.co. In this episode, we'll take a look at one of Plutarch's greatest heroes. He set a high watermark for the other lives, and he shows us what someone might mean when they speak of the glory of the Greeks. He's also responsible, along with his political rival, Themistocles, for the rise of Athens as a power equal to, and eventually even more powerful than, Sparta. To find a parallel in our own day, the generation of Aristides is a lot like what Americans call the greatest generation. It was that generation that, through their sacrifice and their suffering, brought America from one power among many to a global superpower whose only rival was Russia for much of the latter half of the 20th century. The ancient Greeks will look back to these men, and Aristides in particular, the way that we look back to Douglas MacArthur and Jimmy Stewart and the men who fought the battles of World War II. Aristides was that man for them. He fought at Marathon, he fought at Salamis, and he fought at Plataea. That's three of the four major battles by which the Greeks earned their victory and defended themselves against the Persian invasion, against Persian takeover. He expelled the invading Persians not once, but twice, under King Darius and under King Xerxes. And he did so while serving Athens in a number of political functions as a, wait for it, honest politician. Crazy, right? He actually earned the nickname, there's only a few of the Greek and Roman lives where the character earns a nickname, but Aristides earned the nickname The Just. Yeah, think about that. He served in politics, and even after he was done serving in politics, he still had the nickname The Just. So the first thing we need to look at for Aristides is just to get a lay of the land for the important people and places in his life. I've already mentioned the three battles, and those actually are going to be the key places. But let's link each of those battles to a person so that we can get the context we need to understand what Aristides struggled through. The three key people are Miltiades, who was the main general at Marathon. That's easy, M-M, Miltiades at Marathon. Themistocles will be a constant character throughout because he's Aristides' main political rival. So we often talk about the parallel lives being between Greeks and Romans, but really Themistocles and Aristides are just as much of a parallel for Plutarch and one that he wants us to notice, even though they're not explicitly parallel according to the structure of the biographies. The final guy starts with a P. His name is Pausanias, and he was the Spartan general at the Battle of Plataea. So I didn't do it this way, but it kind of works out that Miltiades was at Marathon and Pausanias was at Plataea. Boom. You're welcome. The four main events, really, in Aristides' life are going to be the Battle of Marathon comes first in 490 BC. There's some famous things about the Battle of Marathon that you probably know that aren't even reported in this life, like Pheidippides running you know, 26.2 miles, approximately to report the victory and shouting Nika or victory and then dying on the spot. Not reported here, but a couple other cool stories are. Remember, the biography limits its scope to just what Aristides saw. And we'll see that since Aristides was fighting in the Battle of Marathon, he wasn't sending the news back. Then he reaches his polit- the height of his political power after the Battle of Marathon, but before the second Persian invasion and the Battle of Salamis. After Salamis, though Xerxes runs away, the Persian infantry are still ravaging throughout, you know, Boeotia and Attica and that area. So the Greeks still need to unite as a land force and push the Persians out permanently. And then there's a little bit of the political aftermath of Plataea. But really, that's it. This is a big introduction or a great personal introduction to 
the importance of the Persian Wars to the Greek mind. So let's just jump right in at Miltiades and Marathon. In 490 BC, Athens is young democracy. They had only been founded in 508, 507 BC, somewhere around there. And shortly after becoming a democracy, they had helped the Ionian cities, that's the cities across the Aegean Sea on modern-day Turkey's coast, revolt against the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire is the largest empire which history has yet seen up to this point. And so they're taking on a, the giant in the room, the elephant in the room, the 800-pound silverback gorilla is who the Athenians are risking angering by helping the Ionians revolt against their Persian overlords. And the current Persian emperor is annoyed and vows to get revenge. It takes him a while to get around to it, but around 490 BC, he invades. There was an unsuccessful attempted invasion in 492, but he sends a giant army. I mean, we the numbers from the ancient sources are not very a very accurate representation, but it's fair to say that the number was giant, and it's fair to say that the Greeks were outnumbered. Led by a talented general named Mardonius, who's guided by an Athenian who was exiled for his tyrannical rule. So this Athenian picks the spot at which the Persians land and tells them, hey, I know the lay of the land, my family lived near here, and this is definitely the spot that's going to give us the biggest advantage for numbers to just roll in and overwhelm the tinier Greeks. But Miltiades has a plan. Miltiades' plan is to spread his main line of soldiers thin so that they can match the width of the much larger Persian host. You would think that this would be dumb because as soon as they've penetrated that line, they can just outflank you and destroy you in the back. But Miltiades has another part of his plan that makes it a stroke of genius. And maybe we only think it's a stroke of genius because he won. But the part two of Miltiades' plan is to hide the wings, so a larger bulk force of Athenians, on the left and the right side. And when, as the, set, the thin center starts to give way, but has not yet given way, he, as a master of timing, is going to release those wings and flank the Persians and basically surround them and surprise them so that they'll have no choice except to run back to their ships. Aristides, you're like, what? Isn't this the life of Aristides, right? Why do we care about Miltiades' plan? Because Aristides hears Miltiades' plan, and Aristides and Miltiades and eight other men have been elected by the Athenian people to be general. And when you're elected as a general, you hold power for one day at a time, which means every 10 days... You have full control over the battle plan, whether or not you go to war, uh, how to arrange the troops, etc. Right? But then at the end of that day, you lay your power down and you give it to the next general. And you have to wait nine more days before you have power again. But Aristides hears Miltiades' plan and he thinks, that's genius. That's actually so much genius that I'm going to lay down my day. I'm just going to give my day to Miltiades because I want him to be able to execute that plan. And on top of that, I'm going to encourage all the other eight generals to do so. And I have so much authority or clout that they're all going to do what I say. So Aristides hands his control over to Miltiades, encourages the other eight generals to do so. And that's exactly what they do. He ends up fighting in the battle, in that center, in that thin center where the fighting is hardest. And he's fighting right alongside his political rival, Themistocles. So they're willing to fight together when necessary, even though politically they'll fight each other. They'll fight against each other. So after the battle, there's even some crazy stuff that happens where Aristides can come to the rescue. The Persians 
are trying to retreat into their boats, and, and many of them make it, but it looks like the currents and the winds start to pull them towards Athens, and they freak out, and they've got to send nine of the ten tribes of Athens back to Athens to protect it from Persian invasion. And Aristides, you guessed it, he's the guy that's chosen to stay back and guard the treasure. Why? Because he's just. So how does he contrast to Themistocles, who becomes his political rival? After Marathon, obviously all of the heroes of Marathon are exactly that. They're heroes. Miltiades is celebrated. Themistocles is celebrated. Aristides is celebrated. And so they begin to have a lot of influence on this democracy. But Aristides has a different style than Themistocles, which Aristides tends not to do the popular thing, whereas Themistocles sees if the people want it, give it to them. And so Aristides tends to think, well, maybe we should only give the people what they want when it's good for them. And then the other times we should try to persuade them that it's not. Themistocles is much less scrupulous. So Aristides at first is on the ascendant and he is elected eponymous archon. You know, it's the highest office in Athens. It's like being president of Athens for that year. But it has more than just executive powers. He's It has judicial powers. It has religious responsibilities. But Themistocles begins to become jealous of especially Aristides' judiciary powers. A lot of people will just come to him on their own to decide certain cases because they know that he's not going to favor one or the other. They know that he's not going to listen to bribes. They know that he's not just going to side with his family members because they're family. And Themistocles does all of those things and is well known for doing those things. So Themistocles decides to start a rumor that Aristides is acting more like a tyrant because he's even judging cases that aren't being brought into court. He's acting as a personal arbiter. And he plants the seeds for the Athenian people to ostracize Aristides only a few years after the victory at Marathon. And so this is where we get to our first cool word that we should know, right? Ostracism, which is explained in detail in Plutarch, so I'll let the the life take that, comes from the word ostracon, which means pot shard, because the ancients used clay vessels for transporting and storing liquids and woven baskets for the storage and transport of dry goods. So whenever your clay vessel broke, fell to the ground, you had a bunch of pot shards left. And those became essentially like your post-it notes in the ancient world. You weren't just going to throw them away. Uh, You could grind them up and eventually use them for other building materials, which is what they would do as well. But the primary use for them at first was just as writing material. And particularly in a democracy where you need ballots to vote for people to ostracize, they became the ballot for voting for somebody to be banished for 10 years. And so ostracism became the verb that come from the noun and came into Latin and English and most of the other Romance languages as exactly that, unchanged from its Greek form. Basically, we need all we need to know is that Aristides got the 6,000 votes he needed and he was ostracized. Um, you are still allowed to collect the income from your properties, so it's not like you become penniless miser, but it is still a big disadvantage. Aristides here also is directly contrasted to Achilles, Because when Achilles decides to leave, right, so there's one difference. Achilles decides to leave and abandon the Greeks and not fight for them anymore. Aristides is told to leave. But Achilles also prays that the Greeks will very soon feel the need for Achilles' skills as a warrior. And Aristides actually prays the opposite. He prays that he hopes the Athenians never come to regret or never come to need Aristides while he's gone. 
But it turns out that his prayer is wrong, and they do need him. Because three years later, the Persians are coming again, the force is bigger, and this time it's not led by a general, or it is still led by a general, but it's led also by the Persian emperor, Xerxes. Themistocles' life really has more details about the next battle, but we should really associate Themistocles and Salamis in this next segment because it's Themistocles who has the idea. There's so many echoes here from the Miltiades moment that I can just pull them out right now and we'll understand. Themistocles is the one who has the plan. Aristides thinks it's a great idea. So Aristides backs the plan and because of that, almost all the other Greeks fall in line and listen to him. The other aspect of what's happening here is a lot like Thermopylae, which is a battle we haven't talked about because it didn't come up in this life. But Thermopylae is the battle, the famous last stand of the Spartans that occurs earlier in this war where the Spartans buy the rest of the Greeks time to prepare for the giant Persian army coming down upon them. It gives things like the Athenians time to abandon their city. It gives things like the Corinthians time to start building a wall across the narrow strait of land called the Corinthian Isthmus. Say that three times fast. And that is not mentioned in this life, but it is an important parallel to Salamis because Salamis is fought in a narrow strip of water. The Athenian navy is talented and the primary component of the entire Greek navy, but it is also still outnumbered by the size of the Persian fleet. And so being able to fight in a narrow strait gives them advantages because their ships are more maneuverable and gives them advantages because they can face a smaller number of the foe at one time. So the Athenians have abandoned their city, the Persians have burnt it to the ground, and the entire polis, men, women, and children, have been moved onto the island of Salamis, which is across the Straits of Salamis from Attica. If the Athenians abandon that island or abandon those straits, they're abandoning their wives, children, and grandparents. Or they're going to have to very quickly try to evacuate and run away from an oncoming fleet, which isn't burdened down by a bunch of civilians. The straits between the mainland and Salamis are narrow, as I said before, and Aristides' personal plan then clicks into action after he defends Themistocles' plan. He follows the current of the wind and the, and the water down to a, a small island that's right below the battle, directly south of where the battle is taking place. And all that he knows that or realizes that all the flotsam, all the jetsam, all the people that can swim are going to be washed up there. And so he takes that island as a strategic advantage. There's Persians already posted on it because the Persians aren't dumb and saw its strategic advantage anyway. But he takes it before the battle begins and he's able to basically make sure that any Persians or any Egyptians or any Phoenicians that do survive wind up with him and either are captured or killed. So that's actually, it's that little island, Psitalea is the name of it, where they erect the trophy in honor of their victory so what is a trophy is a trophy a tiny little plastic greek soldier you know dipped in faux gold no originally a trophy comes from the greek word tropion which comes from the greek verb trepo which means to turn and so the trophy just marks the place at which the enemy turned and fled it was originally in land battles just a big pile of stones but it's obviously hard to make a big pile of stones mark something in the middle of the ocean, even if you are in a little protected gulf. So Psitalea, the little island, becomes the place of, it was the most strategically important place, and it also happens to have land. 
So they set up the trophy for Salamis there. And Xerxes is now so worried that he sails off into the sunset and leaves his general to clean up at Plataea. So then we get to Plataea. That's the third battle in Aristides' life. In the first two battles, it seems like he's played essentially the same role. He fought personally and hard in both battles. And he was the leader that made the main difference in forcing the Greeks to see and accept the leadership of the right man and the right plan. So I'm sure, right, Plataea, we're just expecting the third act to look a lot like the first two. No. Plataea is actually a much simpler plan in that all of the Greeks are going to amass as large amount of infantry as they can and take on the Persians in just a pitched battle. Uh, But Plataea ends up being a really good example of the famous saying that the first casualty of battle is the plan. So nothing seems to be going right in Plataea. The Spartans can't get good omens, so they're not allowed to start the battle. They're separated from the rest of the Greeks because when Pausanias, the main general, decides they should switch the the place that they've pitched their camps to a more defensible location, one Spartan refuses to move. And because of him, the Spartans get separated from the rest of the troop movements, and the Persians are able to attack the Spartans alone. Because the Spartans can't get the good omens, they're having all kinds of trouble. They're literally dying as the Persians attack them because they refuse to fight until the gods show that they're on their side. There's a really cool prayer that uh, Pausanias throws up to the gods and at the moment of crisis. And, well, you'll see what happens in the book. But obviously we know, because we're studying the Greeks now, that in some ways they were the victors of this battle. The Athenians finally figure out the Spartans are handling or taking on the Persians alone, and they rush into their defense, led by Aristides, and they're cut off by the Theban traitors. The Thebans had switched sides in the middle of this war because enough of their oligarchs were bought off by the Persian overlords. And so the Athenians and the Spartans at Plataea really fight two separate battles. They end up uniting in the end to take the camp, when they besiege the Persian camp after the Persians have fallen back behind their their walls. But ultimately, Plataea is just a really weird battle, and Aristides plays an important role, but not probably as important a role as he did at Marathon and Salamis. But the Persians are on the run. The Greeks have taken back all of the lands of Greece. They can resettle in Athens. They can feel safe again to build. And now they form a defensive league against the Persians called the Hellenic League. And it's still led by the Spartans. So Miltiades is the only famous Athenian general right now because the Spartans didn't show up at Marathon. They didn't arrive in time. But at every other battle, the main leader in charge, whether it was Salamis or Plataea, the main leader was a Spartan. It was Pausanias actually in both cases. But the That means that the Greeks overall still look to the Spartans for leadership. And all of that is about to change under Aristides right here at the end of the Persian Wars because the Spartan leaders turn and lead this defensive league like tyrants. So their tyranny, their grasping for money, their oppressive taxes make make it so that the islands and cities that they're supposedly protecting want to throw them off as leaders no longer accept their authority and they actually approach aristides and one of his colleagues and say hey uh aristides why don't you lead us 
And Aristides at first demurs, but after a while, he's actually convinced that it would be better for the Athenians to be in charge. And so Aristides founds the Delian League, separate from the Hellenic League, brings all of these islands and their cities and these coastal cities in Asia Minor into an alliance that basically says we will defend against Persian incursion into our lands for as long as we can breathe and live, right? They set up the center of the league in Delos, an island sacred to Apollo. That's where all the gold will go that's going to pay for the navies and the armies and the uh, walls and all the defensive things needed to keep up a defense against the Persians. And the Delian League is contributed to by each member according to their abilities, according to their wealth. And so Aristides is again the man chosen to go around and justly choose the amounts that each city and island owes the Delian League. So Aristides really ends on a high note. He has completely put Athens in charge of all the other Greeks. He has shown that Athenian generals can have great ideas, can be successful. He has shown that in Athenian politics, one can care about justice and not have to worry, right? He stands in stark contrast, dying in Athens while serving Athens, to Themistocles, his opposite, who actually angers the Athenians so much, although we don't know why, that he ends up dying in Persia, basically becoming a Persian citizen, having abandoned the Athens that he helped save from the Persians. It's a very odd story. But that pretty much wraps it for this episode, and I hope you uh, are inspired to read Aristides' life. It's a fascinating one, and I hope that some of the details of the battles have helped you get a sense of where and how Aristides brought his himself and Athens to power all at the same time. He's an easy one to start with because he has mostly good qualities and very few bad things are reported about him. So he's not nearly as complex a character as somebody like Themistocles, who's a hero, but not really. So that about wraps it for this episode. You can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast. And please leave a review of this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help other people find it. Thanks for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours.